0: To Quarentia in Conversation. Q Conversations offer the chance for me, Mark Mennell, to sit down and chat with a range of fascinating people about the things that matter to them most. Today's conversation comes in two parts and is with Frances Whitehead. Now, she may not be known to many people, but to those who do know and love her, she is nothing less than a living legend. For well over 50 years, she was John Stott's secretary, and Stott was a giant of 20th-century Christianity, both in the UK and perhaps more especially in the US and majority world. So much so that in 2005, he was included in the Time 100 of most influential people. Well, Francis has an inside track on working with him for over 50 years, but it's also a fascinating life in her own right, even though she can't really understand why anyone would be interested in it at all. But of course we are, and so it's a real joy to spend some time in her company. In this first part of our conversation, we're going to focus on her life before she started working at All Souls in the 1950s. lovely to see you and here we are in Bourne End and it feels like a million miles away from the bustle of W1. It is. Um, and am I right in thinking this was a home you bought with your mother?
1: Yes when well, I came back from abroad or she came back from abroad. I was in London of course working at the time mm-hmm. and she came back from the Riviera where she lived in Italian mm-hmm. Riviera and needed somewhere to settle and we found this place. On the river? Well where she said I don't want to be near any water. Oh. But the only house we looked <laughs> we looked at in this area, I said it must be west of London, so that I can get home easily at weekends. Mm-hmm. Cause it's an easy way out of town from the West End. Yeah. And we found this, saw this place, and liked it immediately. And she put in an offer, and this was in 1973. Wonderful. We bought She, she bought it, and settled here until she died.
0: And you moved here and, more for permanently well, last summer.
1: Yes. Up until then, I was just coming home at weekends. Mm. Um, and then, yes, last summer, I, came, I left my flat in London uh, full-time and came and lived here full-time. Mm. Up until then, I was living in London more than here. Right. Um,
0: but you feel settled here? And oh, I
1: feel perfectly settled here now. Mm. Yeah. It's, the nice thing about being here is the country, It's there's no pressure, there's no rush, mm-hmm. uh, and people have time to smile and be kind and talk to you.
0: Yes.
1: Whereas in London, it, people are too busy... And it's too crowded. Herring around. Yeah, I'm listening to their mobiles. <laughs> <laughs> yes, and texting while they're crossing the street. But that's and things. right. Yeah, but n- nobody smiles. Mm. It's yeah, it's very different. It's relaxed down here.
0: Well, it's it's lovely to be here. Thank you so much for your time. Um, and just as you picked me up from the station, you um, mentioned that today was in itself, a very special day. And, of yes. course, I was oblivious to this. So what is special about today? Well, the
1: special thing about today is that I realise it's the 57th anniversary to the day when I started work at All Sales On April 9th, 1956, was my first day sitting in the drawing room at 12 Weymouth Street as the All Sales Church Secretary.
0: Extraordinary. Yeah. To this very day. Yes, to this very day. And what's more, you read in your Bible this morning...
1: Yes, uh, something rather extraordinary yes, as well. Exodus, um, this is a day you are to commemorate. I said to the Lord when I, before I read my Bible this morning, please speak to me. And I opened the Bible, and this is what this is the reading for today in my mm-hmm. scripture notes. This is a day you are to commemorate, for the generations to come, to celebrate, etc. Well, isn't that so, amazing? That's well, exactly what we're doing. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> That's so wonderful. I, I must tell Mark that when he comes.
0: <laughs> Well, I mean it's perhaps he perfect. What a what a well, way in. And I
1: said I said, Lord, is it really you're talking to me? <laughs> well. <laughs> uh, oh well, there we are. That's super.
0: <laughs> well, what I thought we could do is we'll start by thinking about life before all souls and then life after all souls. I mean that all right. <laughs> yes. so um if I'd said to you, perhaps say, I don't know, in nineteen forty five you would end up working with someone who had a profound impact on the worldwide church, and you'd work with him for 50-plus years, what would you have thought?
1: It can't be true. It seemed quite outside my sphere or of interest or anything. Um, so what were you I'm interested in then? Not much, but I was... <laughs> <laughs> in 1945, that was... Yes, I was working in London, actually, um, I got a job as secretary, But this was extraordinary actually, he was the Archdeacon of um, London. Right. Uh, gibsmith Smith, right. Ben, I think, yeah, mm-hmm. who was the Vicar of St. John's Wood, because I'd met, I'd been on holiday when war, when war, when peace was declared, was it, would it be 1945, mm-hmm. yeah, 45. Um, I happened to be on holiday from the work that I was doing, Then I had to work because it was wartime, but I had a brief holiday in the New Forest. Because I loved riding, uh, I was riding every day from a, a local stable and found myself riding in the company of a man who turned out to be the Archdeacon of London.
0: As you do. Sorry? As you do. As you do.
1: <laughs> and um, in the course of conversation, he asked me what I was going to do now that the war was over. And I said, oh, I suppose I'd have to get a job in London. And he said, if you do, let me know. I could probably put you in touch with somebody who wants a secretary. Hmm. And that's how it, in fact, came about.
0: Were you a church goer at that time?
1: No. Well, yes, as tra- traditional, conventional right. festivals. Yeah. But, I mean, no, nothing that really meant anything. No. It was just tra- tradition i we been brought up to go to church. Yeah. I was a traditional, yeah, three times gang a gang. year, a bit more. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Mm. So you go out riding yeah. and you get I, offered a job? I, not,
1: I got offered a job if I wanted one in London. And he put me in touch with this architect friend of his who was working, had a job in the Ministry of Works down at Lambeth, uh, who built, his work was to build prefab houses. Gosh. And he wanted a secretary, and I took the job. I never, I had trained as a secretary, least I had learned to type before mm-hmm. I left school, but I'd not been doing that during the war. I was working in a radar research establishment as a human computer in the Mathematics Department. Wow, so was this
0: like Bletchley Park or something? Sorry? <laughs> was this like c- code cracking at Bletchley Park? Yeah. Or
1: well, it was It was to do with searchlights and what they call anomalous propagation. Why, some according to the weather, the searchlights perform better or worse? Oh. And it was some kind of res- I mean, I was in the, what was called the Mathematics Department because I was saying, I love mathematics. And I, mm. when I went there for an interview, ostensibly to be a secretary, I said, couldn't, couldn't I do maths or something? And I was designated to this um, office, to this mathematician. Uh, my job, really, was just to work out other people's equations and draw graphs. Wow. And at one time, they sent me up to Cambridge to work on the Cambridge, the first computer, I think, in right. the Cavendish lab in Cambridge. Goodness me. All I did was turn the handle, and the graphs came out on the screen.
0: Isn't that amazing? So well, how long was that for?
1: Well, until the war ended. Wait a minute, where was it? Had the war ended? Yes, it, um, until, I was there, I suppose... In, um, about two years right. because about 1947 because um, I had been living when I left school I was at Moreton mm-hmm. uh, and had a job during the war in a, a government research department radar research establishment mm-hmm. because I had to do something when I left school but you, went, you couldn't go to university you had to work I was too young to go in the forces so I, I did this job for two years in the radar research establishment mm. and then um, after the war we went to London and then for two years I was working for this architect mm-hmm. as a the secretary then, um, building, he was building print fab houses and then my mother um, decided she wanted to live abroad. At that time my father had died during the war um,
0: How old were you when he died? Was much a, sorry? How old were you when he died?
1: He died when I was 18 right. and I was working, he died during the war and I couldn't get to him He. I had to get compassionate leave to go home to see him Gosh. because he was ill suddenly taken ill with a thrombosis and I got there only to find that he died that ah. afternoon before I got there um, Richard. so he, he, but my, they, my parents were separated they weren't living together my mother right. was doing something else so after the war I mean I always used to go home um, and my home was in Devon mm-hmm. that's where, my, where my father was but that all finished and my mother then decided in '47 to go abroad, so I went with her, and we went to live in Switzerland. Hmm. Um, she loved Switzerland, and we had a flat there on Lake Geneva, yes. overlooking the Chateau de Chillon. Really? Yeah, um, in Montreux. Wow. Up above, yeah. My bedroom window looked out on the Chateau. Where That's and amazing. Barnen and the <laughs> yes. Chateau de yeah. Absolutely. For two years. I think we were there for two years. So you Awful. had a job there? No, I wasn't allowed, we weren't allowed to work. So how, how did, did you must, survive? Well, exactly, I um, it was pure, it was just an empty life. Right. Um, it was a social life. I- okay, okay, in the winter you could go skiing.
0: Were there uh, lots of expats doing the same sort of thing? N- no.
1: It was extremely lonely. Oh, I went to a school of languages, I went to a polyglot school of languages in order to improve my French. Mm. That kept me occupied a bit. I played a bit of tennis um, with people. Um, mm. but it was a t- completely useless life.
0: So was it, do you think your mum was trying to get get away from Britain and just put the past behind her or yeah. was
1: that? I, I, well she had itchy feet she yes. liked, and she'd always, she'd been at finishing school as a young girl, right. she finished in, in Switzerland and loved it and therefore um, thought it'd be nice to live there, of course it's beautiful, mm. um, but it was quite, po- I mean I, I was just drifting, mm. not knowing what life was about. and. Um,
0: well. Let's um, backtrack a bit and think about life before the war, before before the war, yes, and before London, and growing mm. up in Devon. Mm. Okay. So, was it on a farm? Were you?
1: No. Well, it was in the country, in, uh, just on the edge of Dartmoor. Um, we had a house there quite about sixty acres um, of land, which was. Um, farmed by a local farmer um, but we had a very, very large garden. Um, my father grew a lot of well, all our own f- uh, fruit and veg and we sold quite a bit from a sort of a kind of market garden I suppose. We had a big wall garden but he just used it as a hobby. He had been injured in the First World War um, and was a bit disabled because he, he could only use one arm. Right. So he just was a gentleman I'm afraid of leisure, as I grew up in the country, doing all the things that countrymen used to do. We had a tennis court, so we used to have tennis parties, Mm -hmm. Um, we belonged to a local tennis club. My father used to go shooting with his brother-in-law, who had a shoot up on Mm Dartmoor. So he just lived a life, I suppose, just a gentleman of ease. Right. He bred, oh, I know, for a hobby, he bred old English sheepdogs. Oh, lovely. We had, yes, and he bred several champions (laughs) that he showed at Goodness. Yeah. Um, So it was a quiet country life with country pursuits as I grew up.
0: And you had siblings?
1: I had a sister, yes, who was a year older than me, but she died when she was eight and I was seven. She got leukemia. So I was left on my own, very much on my own. There were very few children around in our part of Devon. And how did that
0: affect you at the time?
1: Well, it was lonely. I mean, I just, yeah. My father took me out wherever he went. Um, He was very good to me, um, interested me in everything there was to do, and taught me everything I knew. Taught me how to shoot um, with a rifle. good. Took me out rabbiting. It mm-hmm. yeah, wasn't really good now. <laughs> <laughs> so lots of rabbit pie? Uh, yes. Well that's what life was like. It was yeah. Yeah. lonely. I think that's the main characteristic of it. Because I was on my own. Yes. Until I went to school. When I was 11, I went to a little boarding school. Um, I think I was a weekly boarder. Um, before, when well, I was 13, then I went to a public school. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Orford? Orford. in I went to Malvern Girls College. Mm-hmm. Um, did you enjoy that? yes I did Mm. because it was wonderful because I was made friends I had friends of my own age until then I really had no
0: so it was like a whole new world it was Mm. Yeah,
1: we got evacuated we were in Walfen and and, um, our college was taken over by the the Navy I think it was and they moved in but they never used our buildings and we had to evacuate for a year and we lived I lived in the middle school in the home of a man called Lord Paulette uh, in his country mansion,
0: which right. was very
1: primitive, it had no very little sanitation and only very few bathrooms. Goodness. And we had these huge dormitories uh, in a part of the building where there was sort no heating. Old,
0: old ballrooms and things, was it? Well,
1: uh, it was all, it was all decorated in Chinese wallpaper. I can remember, and there was no water, no electricity, no sanitation. In that part of the It's amazing room. you
0: came out alive.
1: <laughs> oh, <poor laughs> it This was in Somerset. Hinton St George. I went, um, and then we were after a year. We were able to go back to Morven, mm. and life was restored to normal.
0: Now, I mean, with your father living this sort mm. of archetypal country life, yes. I mean, did he give you a sense of aspiration or desire to to get out there into the world, or no, were
1: you just I hardly knew him really. Mm. Um, As as a young child, of course, he took me everywhere he went, and we did it, you know, did everything together, and he taught me anything I knew. But then once I went off to boarding school, um, which I did when I was 11, I only saw him in the holidays. Mm -hmm. Um, And then he died during the war. He was um, 64, I think.
0: Right.
1: In in 1944. Well, by that time, I was working, of course. Um, um, So, no... He always encouraged me. I mean, as a child growing up, he would always encourage me to work hard at my studies. When I first went to boarding school, yes, he was concerned that I worked hard always. and He always wanted me to get the top grades. Right. Um, Which, of course, you did. No. (laughs) (laughs) But we used to have arguments. It amuses me now to think the method of teaching arithmetic in my day, it was rather different from when he had learned. So we used to have big arguments as how you did algebra <laughs> and geometry and how you solved your problems. <laughs> that I do remember. Yeah, I um, but, he <laughs> but he was a good deal older. than He was sixteen years older than my mother, and they were separated. So home was with my father. Mm. I stayed with my father. Oh, uh, so that were, was pretty unusual then. Yes, it was. In those days, it, it just wasn't the thing to, to have parents who weren't living together. Yeah. And I always found that difficult at school, yeah. because my parents were not together.
0: And everybody knew?
1: Yes. You, you, you couldn't hide it. No. You tried to be normal, but you yeah. weren't. You you felt you weren't normal if your parents yeah. were separated.
0: But that doesn't stop you making friends, though, and feeling no. a lot of things. Oh, no, I
1: made friends at yeah. school. Yeah. Um, good friends. Um,
0: and and so your mum is sort of going off all around the place, and then well, that's why you joined yes. her in Switzerland later, is it?
1: That's right, yeah. She'd always been separate from home. She'd left home after my... Si- well, my sister died when I was, eight, when she was, I was seven. And that, hit my mother, I think, very badly. Well, from birth, but yeah. it broke up the marriage. Really? And after that, my mother left. As soon as I went to school, was sent off to boarding school at 11, my mother left home. And she just used to appear on the holidays um, for, for a week or two. Otherwise, I lived with my father and his sister, who looked after me, my aunt. I mean,
0: that must have been devastating...
1: It was, because it was so different from what a lot of other people... Suppose. But I mean, I
0: think also when, yeah. you know, you're going out into the world, you're going off to boarding school and so on, you really need your secure routes yeah. back home, yeah. and suddenly that's was, thrown up in the air. It was a bit. Yeah.
1: But I was always very close to my father's side of the family. and right. He had... His sister had... Um, who lived up on Darkmoor, my aunt up there, and she had... Th- or seven. Children. She had seven, I had seven cousins, right. all older than me. Right. But I mean, there was that, and we used to go up every Sunday and have our Sunday lunch okay. up there, and I used to go riding with my cousins, and that was lovely. Um,
0: so, but was lonely. because it was wartime, after school, you, yeah. you said you couldn't go to university, you get a job in London, but, yeah. and then after the war, 51, you start at the BBC.
1: Oh, well that, yes, well between that, in forty-seven, we went to Switzerland. Mm-hmm. We left, um, and we were in Switzerland for two years And when I was just drifting. Oh. Then we went out to South Africa. Right. And my mother decided to buy this farm, fruit farm in Cape Province in South Africa. So was it
0: her family that had been there well, for
1: generations? No, it wasn't. It was it your, your father's family? Yes. Certainly. But she met friends right. um, at some point who encouraged her to go to South Africa and to live there. Um, and she went and we, she brought this fruit farm, and Pa outside Pearl, Cape profits, And I worked on the f- farm for a year, um, a bit, uh, again, just idling my life away, pointless. Um, life, it seemed to me very shallow at the time. It was just cocktail parties, I guess. Um, I don't know whether it was because of where we were or anyway i can just remember myself on the farm sitting in we had a vineyard and i was sitting in the vineyard one afternoon just weeping and just thinking why is life so unhappy why am i so unhappy because this is such a beautiful place because it is cape province is lovely oh. we were on the on the hill outside paarl on a lovely part of the, the mountains behind and i just i was weeping because it seemed to me that life the world was so beautiful and yet the life that everybody was living seemed so miserable Mm. Uh, you felt the uh, beginnings of apartheid and what it did to the africans you know we we couldn't understand coming out from europe Mm. what it was like and i was just unhappy
0: there was a sense of being in paradise but but feeling completely lost
1: I think I was feeling lost but I think I was blaming the world at least I think the world is lovely but why has it gone wrong but I, yep. what I didn't think was why am I like this right. <laughs> why am I wrong
0: so it was out there rather than in here yeah mm. yeah. Mm. so when you so had you um, well, basically had enough when you came back
1: to Britain thought, well, well yes the thing was I came back my grandmother came out to see my mother and I was um, deputed to come back with her on the boat to escort her home. And when I got back to England, I didn't want to go back again to South Africa. I, th- I thought, I can't bear to go back. And it was the 1952, would it be? 1951, when was the Festival of Britain? 53, Fifty- 53 wasn't it?
0: Wasn't it, was or it before 52? the coronation?
1: It was 52. Well, I think it, I must have come back in 51, and I said- I think it was 51. It wasn't 51, it must no. be 52, okay. I think, because I said, I want to stay, I don't want to go back until after the Festival of Britain, but it meant I was going to have to wait a whole year, and that's, because I was waiting for this thing to happen, I didn't know what to do with myself, and I was living with my grandmother in Devon, and I went up to London, I don't know why, in the tread, I had a copy of the Times, and I was looking through advertisements of the Times, and I saw they were advertising for temporary secretaries in the BBC. As I travelled up on the train, I saw this advert in the Times, and I thought, I'm going to apply for a job, in the BB, a temporary summer job, and that'll keep me here until after the Festival of Britain.
0: Right.
1: And I applied, and I got it. I had an interview, and I, they asked me what I wanted to do. And I and that was in
0: Broadcasting House?
1: In, no, it was in the overseas service. I was interviewed for the overseas service. I said I wanted something to do with literature, I think. Um, or, no, music. I think it was music. Right. I said, well, but they didn't put me into music, they put me into... Into a talks producer in the Overseas Service, who was involved in book reviews right. and in educational programs for West Africa. Was, was that there, in Bush House then? No, it was in um, Oxford Street. It was opposite Oxford Street Tube Station. We had, I think, it was number two hundred Oxford Street in those days. And for a while, my offices were there, overlooking Oxford Circus Underground. Mm. And then the coronation must have come. But then my the BBC moved us up into the Langham Hotel. Mm-hmm. And my office became, not uh, there, Uh, in the Langham Hotel, which was unfurnished. It was just bare of anything, except all the offices were bedrooms with basins in them. And all the corridors were stone flagged and there were no carpets. Mm. It was very primitive, but we have a big big office um, for the overseas service up in the Langham. For a while, and that's how I passed All Souls for the first time. So from your
0: office, could you see All Souls?
1: I couldn't see it, no, but I I went in the front door, of course. But the day I moved, we were told we were at 200 Oxford Street offices. We were told we were going to move to the Langham. So the other secretary and myself in my office, I said to her, let's go up and have a look at our new office and see what it's like. And we walked up, and that's when I saw All Souls for the first time. And I stood outside, and the doors were open. Yep. And the spotlights were on the Picture of Christ. Right. And from the street, you could see. And I said to the girl who was with me i must go in i must go in and have a look just look at that picture and we went in something drew me in it was was like a magnet
0: into the building it was
1: irresistible i had to go in and look and something immediately struck and i said i must come to this church it's so unusual Mm. and i went back to the office back in the langham and i think the first thing i saw happening was a notice outside saying there was a lunchtime concert so I thought, that's wonderful, that's music. We, I went to the lunchtime concert and it was a big letdown. There was only a handful of people there. There was some music and nobody said anything. There were no notices, no welcome. How <laughs> oh, nice to see you, who are you?
0: So it was just, a, it was basically it was, it, this, just using this as a venue. Just
1: as a recital, mm. but nothing was said. Mm. So I thought, this is a dead loss. This church must be, it's pretty dead. I, well, I don't suppose I use that language, but I thought I was disappointed. Mm. And I didn't go back until. Some weeks later, I was walking round by St Peter's in my lunch hour, and then the bells were ringing because we were allowed to ring bells in those days. You went. Now you, we can't. The church is not allowed to broadcast right. anything from the right. tower, oh, oh. but St Peter's. It was. A lo- I was going to Lord. I'd been given a free ticket, free ticket to go to Lords to watch the cricket, right. and I was feeling so happy in my lunch hour, thinking, aren't I lucky? I've got this ticket, and here's the sky is blue, and the sun is shining, and these bells are ringing. I must go in and see what's happening. And that's what took me into St. Peter's that day, in my now, lunch Now, were they
0: all sole services still meeting in St. Peter's then? Or had they no, finished No, the I think the
1: Sunday service, it was the Thursday lunchtime. Right. It was the Thursday lunchtime. But I knew nothing about it, but I, oh. I went in, and the church was full. Oh. Even to the I couldn't find a seat. I had to find a seat somewhere on the side aisle. And there was this man, this young man, preaching. And, and he was preaching from the Bible. I'd never heard anything like it. It was so interesting. Do you remember uh, what his text you know, was? I think it was Old Testament. Right. But I was fascinated that here was somebody talking sense about the Bible that I'd never read. Mm. Not I didn't know a thing. Yeah. Although my am traditionally brought up in the church, yeah. I knew nothing yeah. except the prayer book service, I suppose. And of course, that was John and it, it, it was purely words.
0: Yeah. So that was John Stott, the first. That time was you strong, been... young John Stott. Yeah.
1: but he was, i was so fascinated because it was so interesting. Yeah, and that started me going to the lunchtime services on a Thursday. From that, I started. I then found, of course, there were, it was linked with all services, oh. and I started going on Sundays to all services. Oh. But I went for a year, I should think, to Sunday services. Nobody ever spoke to you. Really, we all wore hats. Those days, yes, you, you had to wear a hat and look posh. Um, <laughs> and we sat in these awfully uncomfortable pews. Um, George Cansdale, right. the zoo man, was there. Right. And I knew I'd got to know him because in the BBC he used to broadcast in the overseas service where I was working. And I used to go down to the studio right. and record George Cansdale's talks for West Africa, right. complete with his snakes, you know, that he gotcha. used to bring into the studio. That's extraordinary. So I got to know him. And I think that's how somehow...
0: So he was a link to the people of the church, right? Oh, yes, he
1: was. And, of course, mm, he knew John. Mm. Um, and I think it must have been through George that I ever got a job with John. Because so I can't imagine why I was ever asked him okay. to join the, st- the staff.
0: So, so John had been rector for perhaps only a couple of years by this time. He was a young
1: rector. This was 52, I suppose. So he 52. was 31. Yeah. Yes. Uh, and I think I went for a year uh, on a Sunday before the penny really began to drop that I needed to do something about my faith and the fact that I was a hypocrite. And I knew by then that I was a complete hypocrite. So why did
0: you keep going for that year?
1: Because I was the teaching was so good. Mm. It was a biblical teaching. It was the Bible...
0: So there was something innately gripping about that? It,
1: yes. It, it made sense. And the thing was, it wasn't the BBC in my work. My producer was responsible for... Reviewing literature, mm-hmm. and I was involved in getting in all new books for her to get reviewed, and I was interested in books, mm-hmm. and I began to read. As a, I was became became a serious reader, I'd never been a serious reader before, but I began to be interested in, in what people had written in the world. I, mean, I, was being, I must have been such an empty head. Uh,
0: <laughs> but so basically, the BBC was a bit like your university.
1: Well, it was. It became an education. Um, and I became really interested in books, and of course, I know what was going on in the, being taught out of the scriptures. It seemed so interesting. Mm. But it took a year before, as I say, I began to realize that I had to do something about my own mm. faith because I began to feel such a hypocrite that I'd always talk to God. And I knew that from a child, I prayed the Lord's Prayer every night. This is what got me. And I can remember my father taught me to pray, he used to come and hear my prayers every night. And I can hear him now, I can see myself kneeling at my bed with my father beside me and he said to me, stop, you're talking much too fast, you haven't thought about a single word you've said. Mm. And that's what he said to me and it's always remained to me. I'm still the same. (laughs) (laughs) But I I was just talking without thinking Mm. about a single word and I thought to myself, I said to God every night, thy will be done. Mm. And I knew then I had never meant it. And I began to feel really uncomfortable mm. that this was not how you treated God, mm. and I, yeah, and that's how I was feeling the night that I came on the union, you know, a what to a watch night service, yes. nineteen fifty one to whatever New Year's Eve, yeah. when John was preaching on I, "If I be lifted up, would draw all men to me." Oh yes, the picture. Yep. he he was he was referring to Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness. Right. And I had just been up at Oxford with, I had a boyfriend who had taken me to the... um, The Asmodeon? Yes, the Asmodeon, where it's got a picture of Moses lifting up the serpent on the the staircase. And he'd shown me this picture. And that was a week or two before. And I'd been very struck by it. And yet here, because I was with my boyfriend, it, it struck, it stuck in my mind. And then, you know, a few weeks later, here was John preaching on this very picture. Oh. So I was listening, as I would not have listened before if I hadn't already seen the picture on the wall. And it just made total sense. So then, the penny
0: drops in your mind?
1: In mine, because I'd seen the picture. Yep. And he then opened it up. Did you talk to someone that night? I didn't talk to anybody, but the Lord spoke to me. I mean, mm. that night, because it was an advantage, he obviously gave people an opportunity to respond to Christ after he'd been preaching and he used to have a little prayer afterwards, people st- went, and if you could stay behind if you were interested in hearing, which I did. And he said a prayer which one could echo, which yeah. I, and I did, I didn't tell anybody, but I echoed it. And then, uh, that was New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, and then I walked home, I walked home on air. It was, it was, I was fortunate, I suppose, that night, that I felt Christ was there with me, speaking to me, it was so real. I don't know whether you've had the experience of really experiencing the presence of the Lord mm. with you. It's, it seems so tangible. So I made my response. But he uh, as John said, tell me afterwards. And I'll give, but of course I didn't. I was far too shy. I couldn't, didn't know what to do. I just mm. ran up. Well, I didn't. I just left and walked all the way home to Bayswater. Mm. On New Year's Day, by myself, I walked to Bayswater to my digs, mm. having come to Christ that night and knew I had. Mm. Uh, it was so real. But that was on January the 1st, but it took six months um, after that before I, I began to think, well, really, this is nonsense. You ought to now. It's time you made yourself known and learnt a bit more about what it means to be a Christian and how to go on. I'm sure we were often given opportunities to do something about it, but I thought, I can't. What do I do? I knew I ought to talk to somebody and tell them what I'd done. But I didn't know how to, so I picked up, we have a a form, a congregational register. We had, John had a congregational register, everybody who was a member of the church was put on a register, I think they are still. Mm -hmm. But there was a form you could fill in, and I thought, well, if I fill in the form, and if there's a, there are boxes you can tick, and if there's a box you can tick, which would mean that somebody's going to contact me, rather than I having to go up to them and say, can I have a work, can I talk to you, somebody else is going to have to take the initiative. So I'm a real card. <laughs> I found this form, and I, I saw one of the boxes you could tick was opportunities for service in the church. So I thought, oh, that will be okay. I'll tick that, because probably they'll I can do something like... Um, pour m- I didn't know what one did in the church. I thought one served tea and mm-hmm. poured out tea, you know, bun, uh, handed round buns or something. So I thought, if I tick that, somebody's bound to ask me what I want to do. And this will start the conversation. So I ticked it and waited Believe it or not, a few days later, I had a phone call in my office at the BBC. I think I must have had to get my phone number or something. Mm-hmm. And there was a voice saying it was John Stott. So... Uh, would you instantly a, recognised. A, absolutely, yes. I was flabbergasted, I think. And I think he said to me, I think uh, y- y- you said you were interested in some opportunity for service in the church. I think you'd better come and talk to me, says John. <laughs> oh, thank you. I a summons. Think. When can I come? So he, he got out his black book apparently and he said well um, this what it would be a, I think it would have been a Wednesday night he was running a Bible school um, which he used to do three times a year and it was he gave me a, rapid, a time six, six o'clock before the Bible school was due to begin which I realized later of course there was just quarter of an hour between the time he told me to come and the time he was supposed to be lecturing in the church just quarter of an hour
0: mm.
1: so I went at six o'clock after work that day. He was already dressed up to go into the pulpit in his gown and his tabs or whatever he used to lecture in. We went into the inner vestry, which of course we know isn't there, but it's a little cubbyhole. And he sat me down, and as soon as he started talking to me, he realized, of course, I hadn't a clue what I was talking about. I had no idea. I thought it was a question perhaps of sending out magazines or, Mm -hmm. I don't know. He asked me what I wanted to do, and of course I didn't know. So he said, well, I think... I think perhaps you could help address some envelopes for the circulation of the magazine, but I think um, you probably th- it'd be good if you got into one of the little groups for beginners. he realized I was a new Christian. He, I, he said to me, uh, "What are you trusting in for your salvation? What well, when you get to the gates of heaven, this was an interview. what are you going to say?" And somehow, somehow, I said to him, "I'm trusting in Jesus." Now. How I produced that, I don't know. <laughs> because I was totally untaught. Oh, yeah. But I said the right thing. Yes. So he said, good. Um, I think you, you better join the lunchtime. There was one on a Friday lunch yeah. hour. Uh, study group, or n- yes. what it was We called them nursery classes for new babes. A nursery classes? We, we, we had right. nursery classes for right. babies. Right. And I was a baby Christian. He knew I was. I didn't, of course, but he did. Yeah. And he put me into the Friday lunchtime huh. Bible study, which I went from my office, which was run by Richard Bardler, who in those days was a chaplain to the stores. Right. So for half an hour, that's what I used to do on my Gosh. my Friday lunchtime, until I actually found myself leading it, because Richard went and I, hmm. I was asked to take it over.
0: By John.
1: No, by R- Richard I think, who's right. yeah. But I mean, but he, I knew nothing. I, <laughs> I didn't know how I, they let me do this. I mean, it, you're obviously it was,
0: very convincing.
1: <laughs> but I didn't know. The, hmm. By then time it was 1954 it must have been 54, when well, I was just getting going, I've got my years a bit wrong probably, but it was the time of the Harringay Crusade. Right. And somehow I got, I was allowed to apply to be a counselor. When I was- So this t-
0: is for Billy Graham?
1: For Billy Graham. Mm. And I met some of the, oh, Lorne Sanny, did you ever meet Lorne Sanny? Oh, lovely, yeah, Superman, navigators there. Um, and some of their leaders but I was allowed to be a counselor and I think I knew four verses by heart you had to know you know something on the sit in Romans three you had to know something about the cross and something about Bible reading, one a verse about Bible reading and a verse about joining the church I think I knew four verses by heart and I was sick I was allowed to be a counselor
0: well they obviously saw something in you but <laughs>
1: I used to be terrified because I used to go to the meetings at Wembley or wherever it was, Harringay, and just say, look, please don't give me anybody who knows more than I do because I, I shan't know what to say.
0: Make sure you don't miss the second part of our conversation, which can be downloaded from iTunes in the podcast section or directly from Jellycast.